Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. This message from our Sunday church service is part of the resources we provide as we seek to see lives changed by Jesus. You could also listen to our Big Three podcast, a conversation that unpacks three big questions raised from sermons like this one. You can find more information about Gaimia Baptist Church as well as discipleship resources and an opportunity to join us in person or online on our website, guymeabaptist.org.au Well, the sermon today is going to be a first-person narrative. If you are new here, this is something we do occasionally. This is actually the third first-person narrative in this series. Mark has led us through the story of Esther and Ruth in a way where he immerses himself in character. Isn't it wonderful that God didn't just give us a to-do list in Scripture, but he gave us stories as he worked with people and in the world. And, and one of the ways that we can learn how we can participate with God is by immersing ourselves in these same stories. So I'm really looking forward to what Mark has to share with us today. He will be in character as Jonathan, who is the crown prince of Israel. If we could welcome Jonathan to the platform, please. I haven't slept all night, just replaying it over and over and over and over, wondering if I've done the right thing. Can I, can I trust him? Can I trust him with my life and with my family and with my children? And at the same time, I know that even if I can't, he is the anointed of the Lord. And I've known that from the very first time I laid eyes on him. It was the, the first campaign after the Amalekite fiasco in which my father had had a very public and very dramatic well, falling out with Samuel, the prophet of the Lord and the seer of Israel. It was a fairly open secret what Samuel had declared that day, that the Lord had rejected my father as king, that he had chosen another a neighbor who was better than my father to whom the kingdom would be given. And the change in my father after that was, well, dramatic, profound. He was shaken by it. Very quickly it became evident that my father had become more fearful, more fearful of those around him, wondering who it might be that might make a play for the throne. Would it be one of the generals? Would it be one of the tribal leaders? Who were the prophets and the priests beginning to favor in the court? But perhaps the most dramatic example of the change came when we met the Philistines of the Valley of Elah. They were our traditional enemies, and we had lined up on either side of the valley. Both armies dug in, neither willing to give up the advantage of the high ground, waiting for something to happen so that the battle could be engaged. Normally, my father would have been the front of any event to bring about the battle. But not this time. This time, the initiative was in the Philistine camp. Every day, for 40 days, Goliath, their champion from Gath, defied the armies of Israel, challenging us to bring out a champion who could face him. 
And should our champion win, he assured us the Philistines would serve him. But if he should win, we would become their servants. Now, my father had been anointed by the Lord to lead the armies of the Lord in battle. And he had won famous victories on behalf of the Lord. When he had marched the army through the night and rescued Jabesh Gilead from the Ammonites, when he had defeated the Moabites to the southeast or the Edomites to the south, roundly defeating the kings of Zobah or beating the Philistines time and time again. He was a man of bravery and of courage and of certainty, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in Israel, but he was dwarfed by this giant. Six cubits in a span if he was a cubit. And now my father was just a tall man because the spirit of the Lord that had so empowered him and animated him and sustained him had been taken from him. And I sometimes wonder if it wasn't my father's familiarity with the empowerment of the spirit that actually persuaded him to send David at all. Because when we heard stir in the camp that there was a man who was willing to face this giant, we were stunned when it was a shepherd boy. Some young man, not old enough to be in the army, visiting his brothers apparently, but who spoke with the conviction of faith, who assured my father and those in his tent that the Lord who had rescued him from the paw of the lion and of the bear would indeed rescue him from this Philistine. And my father sent him out. And armed with his faith and a sling, some stones, the Lord did indeed deliver him. Hit the giant right in the forehead with a rock, stunned him. Before he could return to his feet, David had rushed forward, pulled the giant's own sword out of his scabbard and chopped his head off. And the battle was engaged. Or rather, the chase. The Philistines, seeing that their champion was down, fled the scene, and we chased them all the way back to their cities, plundered their garrisons, plundered their camp. It was interesting, though, in the immediate aftermath, because no one else really seemed to connect the dots on who David was. And maybe it was because I had seen my father so close up, because I had seen so many times when the Spirit of the Lord had come upon him in power and he had led the armies of Israel into victory, that I recognized in David more than just a shepherd boy whom the Lord had used, but recognized instead the anointed one of God, the neighbor to whom the Lord had given the kingdom, which put me in a terrible position. I mean, I'm loyal to my father. I love my father. I'll follow him anywhere, and I would lay down my life for him. And I'm the crown prince. And I will admit that there is a certain appeal to being king of the Lord's people. And why shouldn't I be? I've had my fair share of military success. I have the loyalty of the army and the officers. The people know me and love me. I know the tribal leaders. I could do it. I could seize the throne. But to do so would not just be to resist David, but to resist the Lord. And what sort of a king would I be 
if I gained the throne but lost my soul. But to side with the Lord was to side with David against my father. How do you do that? How do you manage the expectations of your father? How do you manage the expectations of the kingdom? And how do you manage the fear that exists in placing my fate in the hands of this shepherd boy? As you may be aware, dynasties don't change peacefully, but on a tide of blood. But I recognized in David the anointing of the Lord. And so I determined that he was indeed my neighbor. And our law encourages us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so I will love him as I would love myself, and I will help him secure the throne. So I called him in, and we made a covenant, he and I, And the covenant was essentially that I would not harm him, my chief obstacle to the throne, and he would not harm me, his chief obstacle to the throne. I gave him my robe as a symbol of the kingdom and other gifts, and initially everything seemed fine because no one seemed to realize who it was that was in our midst. He was just a young man who had arrived at just the right time and had been empowered by God to save Israel. But it soon became evident that more was going on. And my father kept him close, as you would, and sent him on additional campaigns. And in every campaign that David went on, he was wildly successful. The army loved him. They were loyal to him. The commanders and generals, had, they were full of confidence in him. The people loved him because their sons and their brothers and their husbands returned safely from battle more often than not. They sang songs about David. And the love existed even in my family. My sister was completely smitten by him. And for a bride price that would make your eyes water, David became the son-in-law to the king, my brother-in-law. But at some point, the fear that was now in my father's heart overwhelmed his thankfulness and gratitude that God had provided. Eventually, my father began to see that David was a threat. Not that David had done anything to justify that. You see, David exhibited an unbelievable trust in the Lord's timing. He, he, He was in no rush. He was not seeking to form alliances, political or otherwise. He was not concerned to get people on his side to make sure that he had enough numbers should the day come where he could form a coup. No, he was absolutely patient, trusting in the Lord's timing. That was not at all a threat to my father. But my father saw it differently. The change in my father was also evident in his moods internally tormented to the point where none could comfort him. None but David. Ironically, when my father was in 
the worst state. It was only David's playing of the harp that brought him any comfort at all. And it was on one of those instances when my father was tormented that he grabbed a spear and hurled it at David as he played. Now, I wasn't alone in thinking that this was just my father's mood, chalking it up to just a kind of a really bad decision in a really dark space. But just a few days later, after a cabinet meeting, my father dismissed everyone, but asked myself and two of his advisors to stay behind. Looked me in the eye and commanded me to find David and kill him. I was not prepared for that. Didn't want to obey my father. Didn't want to disobey my father. So I bowed and left. I found David, warned him, sent him out to the field just outside of the town walls to the rock of Azel, a rocky outcrop at the end, and told him to hide there. And then I went back and I spoke with my father alone. And, and I spoke to him about how the Lord had provided David for us, about the mighty victories that David had been able to win on behalf of the Lord and the king, my father. I reminded him that David had acted innocently towards him, and my father was persuaded. He took an oath before the Lord, the God of Israel, that David would not be harmed. And while my father had changed, I knew him to be a man of his word. And so I went and got David and brought him back to my father. And they were reconciled together. And David was with him as he had been at the start. But the reconciliation was not without its cost to me. Heard the whispers that my true loyalty wasn't with my father, but was with David. That I secretly wanted the kingdom to move to Judah rather than to Benjamin questioning of my motivation and whether my subversive actions would end up betraying my father on the battlefield. Some began to bypass me in favor of my younger brothers. Others began to try to convince me that I should step up and seize the throne. So I wasn't in a great state of mind when David burst into my chambers three nights ago and accused me of breaking my covenant and plotting with my father to have him killed. After angrily denying any of that to be true, he recounted what had happened to him. And my father, while he was playing the harp for him, had once again tried to pin him to the wall. And when David had returned home, had found that there were armed guards waiting to kill him outside, and he had only escaped out the window. And then he had gone to Samuel, the prophet of Israel, the only one who could stand up to my father in Ramah to seek refuge with him. And my father, which I still find hard to believe, sent three separate divisions of soldiers to Ramah to take David by force, even leading the last one himself. And so David had turned to the only person that he could, to his covenant partner. And his fate was in my hands. So we hatched a scheme. 
the New Moon Festival has been just finished. A two-day festival where my father would host the leading men and people of the kingdom. David, as an important general, would be expected to be there, but we were going to hatch this little play that uh, if my father noticed that David wasn't there, I was to say that David had urgently asked if he could return home for a family festival and that I had given him permission. If my father took that news well and was really relaxed, then David was fine and there was no danger and he was wrong and I was right. But if my father lost his temper, well, then David was indeed correct and his life was in danger. So we agreed on this, and then David asked me, who would tell him what my father said? And I knew. I knew he was asking whether he could trust me. Because I alone would know where he was. So we went out to the field, to the rock of Azel again, and there I told him that I would be the one to sound out my father, and I would be the one to tell him. And that if my father meant to kill him, I would send David away safely, and then I reaffirmed my covenant not to harm him, and made him reaffirm his not to harm me. And I turned home. First day of the festival came, two days ago now, and David's seat was empty. Not uncommon for someone to miss the first day, and whether my father thought, thought that he was unclean because he had been recently at war or whatever the reason, I took some hope that maybe David was safe because my father said nothing. And then yesterday, David's seat was empty again, and my father scowled and asked me where the son of Jesse was. Now you need to realize this was not an intimate family gathering. This was a state dinner. Generals and army officers were there. The leaders of all 12 tribes were there. There were members of the high priest's household there. There were members of the prophetic school representing Samuel there. All of the most important, significant people in the kingdom were there. The report that they gave of this dinner would get to every corner of the kingdom. And I knew that others were listening when I answered my father's question, trying to sound as nonchalant as I could. I told him the prefabricated story. David had come to me and urgently requested that he be allowed to go home. His brother had ordered him to come home for a family thing, and I thought that would be pretty fine, and he's a good guy, and so I let him go. Well, um, it became pretty clear what my father thought of it. He surged to his feet, enraged tore strips off me, claiming that I was treating him and my mother shamefully. And then, in front of every single person in a room that had gone silent, said these words, Don't you know that as long as the son of Jesse lives, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send for him, for he must die. 
And all of my scheming to try to hold the balance between loyalty to my father and loyalty to David, being a good son while trying to side with the Lord, all blew up. Because in that one moment, I had to make answer to all of the leading people in the nation about my intentions. Did I want to be king or not? And in a moment, I almost told them where David was. Because this was my moment to seize the kingdom. It was right there. If I told them where David was, there would be no one to save him. But he's the Lord's anointed. So I stood to my feet, and though my heart was pounding in my chest, said as calmly as I could, why does he have to die? What has he done? Which didn't really answer the question on the table. It was more than enough to make my intentions known. And if there was any question about what my father thought, it became pretty clear because he picked up a spear and hurled it at me. I was no better to him than David. I'm as much an enemy as David is, and I am dead to him. And then I got angry. <laughs> and I've been thinking about it ever since. Have I done the right thing? Can I trust David? I've seen the profound change in my father. A man who was empowered by the Spirit of God, anointed by the Lord to save his people, acting with courage, acting with bravery, now consumed by fear. Would David be any different? When the Lord delivered the kingdom to him, would he suddenly see me not as a covenant partner, but as a threat to him? as a reminder and a living representation of the last dynasty, would my life be forfeit? I've been in my fair share of tight spaces, but I don't believe I have ever needed more courage than I need right now. Because even if I cannot trust David, he is the anointed of the Lord. And I will trust the Lord. We hope this message has challenged and strengthened you, encouraged you to pray and rely on God and blessed you today. If you'd like to get to know some of our church community, you can listen to the We Are The Church podcast, an open conversation with real people who call GBC home as they share stories of God at work in their lives and how their lives are being changed by Jesus.